it's just broken the family really and um, and Kyle is now feeling how long he's been there so and for the fact that it's a struggle and, and they dictate if you go in when you can go in when you can talk to him I don't get a private call um, everything is ruled by them and I've got no rights and I've got no say over my son's treatment and care at all. That was Tracy Gibbon, whose son Kyle is held at Scotland's State Hospital, Carstairs. She was in Parliament a few days before this recording to take her case to the Scottish Government. We have covered the story in print and online, exposing a part of the system which few think is being aired properly. It touches on mental health, how we care for people, and how people with complex needs can hope to contribute to society instead of facing years locked away. We'll hear more from Tracy, her local MSP, and discuss the response later. First, hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and today I'm joined by the politics team across the PJ, the Courier, and Sunday Post. So, welcome to Adele Merson, Justin Bowie, Alistair Clark, and Derek Healy. You might think that it is November 2023, but political events of this week have made me think that we are all the way back 10 years to a time before the independence referendum and Brexit. David Cameron is in the UK government and the SNP is preparing to make the case for independence in Europe and everything is just fine. Is anyone else crying on the inside? Yeah, definitely me. It has been a weird couple of days. Um, I think it was summed up best when the BBC reporter at Downing Street yesterday questioned whether he might have been having a funny turn or if that was actually David Cameron walking up Downing Street um, to take up a post in government. Um, and I think I think a few months ago, if you'd said, you know, what will happen first? Will there be another independence referendum or will David Cameron return to government? I don't think anyone would have thought it would have been David Cameron returning to government. But here we are. He's, he is now Lord Cameron and he is Foreign Secretary. I think, you know, whatever Rishi Sunak wanted to, to to signal with a reshuffle, it's hard to see it as anything but a sort of Tory government that's run out of road a little bit and has started back at the start again in some ways um, to find ideas. And in a sense, you know, one of the really interesting parts was not not David Cameron, but the number of ministers who seemed to be resigning. And somebody pointed out yesterday that um, for for ministers who are in post just now, for them to to have a decent shot at getting work when they lose it, if they lose the next election, um, they need to have a sort of six month gap between leaving ministerial office and taking up a new job. And now would be the, the ideal time for them to resign if, if there's an election in May that they're expecting to lose. Um, and and we, we did sort of see that to a certain extent. You know, there was a couple of quite junior unknown ministers resigned. One or two of them saying they were resigning to to explore other opportunities, um, which, which really is just saying that, you know, they, they fully expect to be looking for work in six months' time. Yeah. It's like sort of we're all on gardening leave um kind of vibe about it and uh if if people are sort of signaling so clearly that they know they're on the way out then yeah this is is like zombie governments the phrase that's often often used i suppose though that one of the things that we're all talking about is david cameron rather than anything else so um you know maybe rishi sunak was onto something there but there was a lot of um chat actually about the way this was was handled especially to do with um the sort of football transfer vibes and Derek you were you were leaning into that a little bit I mean what did you think of the whole the way this was conducted I thought it was pretty incredible um so I, I grew up watching wrestling so apologies if this is lost in anyone but there's there's incredible footage on Sky News of when the car pulled up and when he got out of the car and it was like watching the Undertaker return or something like everyone was just kind of flabbergasted and lost for words um it was totally totally bizarre and I think it caught everyone off guard I mean the interesting thing about it for me is that it's you know it's a weird setup now. So he's been brought in, <clears throat> he's been made a lord. 
he's not going to be able to be scrutinised in the same way as other foreign secretaries have in the past, you know, to go into Parliament and be questioned by MPs in the same way. So it does sort of suggest that Rishi Sunak didn't have confidence in any MPs around him to come in and do this job. So it's not much of a vote of confidence in them. Um, it's just absolutely bizarre, isn't it? I don't think anyone expected that to happen. So it was great TV. I liked your, your comment. Get Big Sam back in for the, the last uh, few games of, of the Leeds trying to stay in the Premier League. That was that was good. But there is that kind of activity going around there. I mean, I don't know what my view is. I think, I think the Tories have now recycled themselves so many times that their constituent parts are actually at risk of just perishing at any moment. Um, I mean, you can't you can't recycle plastic bottles as many times as as the Conservatives have tried to reinvent themselves in front of us, and they're, they're obviously just moving the Rubik's cube around and hoping that something will stick before the inevitable election. I don't know how long they'll carry on, but we could step back a little bit though, because I think Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who had a go at police and was accused of encouraging the far right to feel emboldened, that that kind of sparked this whole escapade. But a little thought experiment though, maybe Justin, out of all of this, what positives are there for Rishi Sunak or the country? Are are there any, is, is there anything good that comes from this politically or, or for the, the UK as a whole? On the spot there, Justin. Well, I suppose for Rishi Sunak, um, he's still in power. He's not been ousted after getting rid of the Home Secretary. It, there is a no confidence letter that was submitted, but as far as I'm aware, um, you know, there's not been a whole number of them. So he's still in power. He can take that as a positive. If you were to try and spin it as the government might, David Cameron is an experienced figure. He is well known on the international stage. He will have good rapport with certain international leaders on the international stage. There is an argument to be had that he was Prime Minister at a relatively young age. He's not that old currently. Why shouldn't Rishi Sunak draw on that experience from someone who was in a senior post before, somebody who knows how government works, somebody who, of course, did manage to win a majority for the Tories in 2015? The downside to that, though, is that foreign policy is not exactly an area that David Cameron covered himself in glory with, is it? You know, there was Brexit. He agreed to that referendum. It obviously turned out disastrously for him in the end. And even on other policy areas, like, for example, his government cozied up to China a lot more. That policy has since been reverted both in the United Kingdom, but obviously, especially in the United States to a degree as well. So, yes, I think there are ways that Rishi Sunak can spin this and try and argue that He's going to a more sensible, centre-ground approach, bringing in a more experienced figure into what you could argue is quite an inexperienced government. But I, I think selling that spin is going to be a very, very difficult job. Yeah. Um, so maybe this is the steadiest version of a Conservative government we can have right now. I mean, you mentioned David Cameron kind of mucking up the referendum, but he's had time for uh, reflection, I suppose, um, which is something that we, we clearly need. Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, Russia, the list, the list goes on. Um, Adele, you're a reasonable person, which is why I'm going to trigger you by repeating a phrase uttered by otherwise grown-up people in recent days, which I know thoroughly offended you. On David Cameron, the phrase "Daddy's home" was actually said out loud by some commentators. Are you able to discuss this concept further? Is he the grown-up in the room, <laughs> or are you thoroughly nauseated? Yeah, there's something creepy about it. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm not not really in favour of seeing him. <laughs> politician as a daddy figure i don't know it's a bit odd um yeah as you say it's they 
for a lot of them, they will see him as a safe pair of hands. And indeed, perhaps that it's more a case of, look, it could be a lot worse. There's people out there that could, that could, be, could be worse and maybe a sense of relief at that. The whole kind of way it played out on Twitter, as, as you kind of alluded to before, was just quite strange, like the daddy's home. And I, I don't know if any of you watch Love Island, but actually the, the, the manner of the Conservative tweets actually kind of reminded me of Love Island. Like, here's your next bombshell. Here's your next Love Island bombshell. You know, everything's so serious just now in the world, in life. And it, it just felt a little bit frivolous, maybe, to kind of be treating it that way. Um, yeah, it was, a stra- it was a strange afternoon, I think. Yeah, there was a flippant sort of tone. The weird thing about the daddy's home was that it sort of brought up images of me of the sort of father that runs away and leaves his family. And I mean, that's exactly what David Cameron done, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, in the words of Danny Dyer, who I like to quote often, he was, he was sitting with his trotters up. Um, <laughs> and, and the idea that they wanted to somehow remind the country that that's exactly what he did. This was his supporters. I, I think it, it says a lot when you struggle to see much better than that. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right there. I may. I mentioned earlier as well that the SNP are are going to um, going back to the future at the same time as all this happening with a paper on Europe this week, and it, it brings me to Alex Salmond, who's uh, one of the few people in in the um, I guess pro independence movement, the nationalist camp, that um, welcomed David Cameron back. So I mean, you've got you really are going back to the future with all this stuff. Alistair, there's an honest question here, but but who is this all for now? When I'm coming to the SNP, we've got this independence paper again coming out on, on Friday. Independence in Europe, something David Cameron is very used to, and he'll be foreign secretary, so maybe he'll have to deal with an independent Scottish government by the end of all this. Who knows? But is, are these themed policy positions helpful now? Is this filling? A, is this treading water? Where, where are we going next with this? So I think what the SNP want to achieve with this is to get ready for a hypothetical Scottish independence campaign, where on some of these key issues they struggled in 2014, but the the one where they they struggled the most in 2014 is is the one they haven't answered really. And that's the currency. Um, and that's the, the, you know, the one paper that still seems to be missing. Um, but on all these papers that have been, that have been published, um, it does seem that they want to, to be able to point to something to say we've been thinking about these issues. Um, I don't think they are for anyone in particular just now. It, it seems to me like they're for an argument that's to come rather than an argument that they want to have just now. I would completely agree with that as well. I think probably there's an element here where the stuff that's going to come out this week might not be that exciting for people, but at the same time, one of the big criticisms in 2014 was about a lack of detail, a lack of being able to point to something and say, this is exactly how it's going to work. So if you do slowly build up this backlog of evidence and data and here's what we're going to do and here's the argument, this is what we're saying the policy position would be. That does leave you in the future in a position where you can look back on some of that stuff and say, well, no, wait a minute, we set that already. So I think that's the value in it rather than having, you know, a big exciting moment this week, for example. I think the problem in some ways with that for the SNP will be, though, that this is happening perhaps so far out from whenever an eventual referendum might be that what if the situation's changed by the time a referendum comes around? I mean, we think in the past seven or eight years, We've had Brexit, we've had a pandemic, there's been war in Ukraine, there has been so much that's happened globally, you know, we have high inflation at the moment. The SNP could outline plans for independence right now that then seem a bit obsolete six, seven years down the line, because let's be honest, that referendum is not happening for a considerable period of time now. Mm -hmm. Adele, we were looking at something else that's been happening this week, away from the the political machinations, um, looking at what the Scottish government should be focusing extension on um, day to day, I suppose. It's not top of the wish list from communities right now um, to just talk about 
rearranging the deck chairs at the, uh, at the in Downing Street. The hot topic I keep hearing is um, just the lack of a quick response. I think getting money in people's pockets from all the flood damage that we've seen over recent weeks from Storm Babette, which was catastrophic, really in some places, particularly in and around. Brechin. Um, and now we're in, uh, just as we're talking today, we're just at the other end of some more flooding storm, Debbie. Adele, you, you've been writing about this. Is there any good news for, for people at all who flooded out of their homes before Christmas? Is the Scottish government doing anything behind the scenes here? I think we, we obviously saw the First Minister went to Brechin very shortly after the, the storms. And I think that appearance was welcomed by people that lived there. It showed that he was, at least it looked like he was, he's making it a priority but I think you could argue now that those, as you can imagine, with any of these kind of big weather incidents, it feels like all the attention, including often the media attention and the attention of politicians is in the immediate event. And then it's quite easy for the for everyone to move on and kind of forget the reality of just how horrible it would be to be out of your home. Christmas is approaching. You don't really have any idea what, what's happening in terms of funding. Um, I, I think now we're in the position where I think it's understandable to an extent that it takes it takes some time to work out the cost of something like this. So that's what councils seem to be doing just now. They're effectively assessing what the damage is. And I guess it would be remiss of government to just magic up a figure out of thin air before they actually know, you know, that figure could end up being less than what is needed or more than what is needed. Unlikely, <laughs> unlikely that one, but more likely less than what is needed. But so I think there's a degree of there is a bit of time, but it also doesn't feel, you know, it's how it looks as well. It doesn't feel like there's the urgency being put on this that's needed in terms of a Derek could probably say a bit more about his story in terms of the ministerial task force, but it doesn't feel like there's that prominence taking it that seriously. We're weeks down the line. And yes, although it is complicated to work out exactly how much damage there is, it also needs to happen at pace or you end up with people in a situation where they just basically potentially feel like they've been abandoned with, with no real with no real help out there. We've also got the Bellwin scheme, but that is something that ministers activate and it's more for your sort of emergency short-term repairs. It, it doesn't so much cover those those longer term uh, repairs and that need done. So yeah, there seems a bit of a a bit of a gap almost in terms of offering support to people. Yeah. You mentioned there, Derek, you had a, a fascinating story that was published in the Sunday Post this week that, about the sort of grumblings about the government's uh, slow pace to, to deal with a, a real um, problem facing a lot of communities and businesses as well. Yeah. So I mean, just a, as a bit of kind of background, first of all, I mean, so we spoke to some people living locally and asked them about the kind of the circumstances they're in at the moment. Some of them haven't been able to go back to their homes, um, even to see it, because it's, it's not been able to be kind of graded as safe yet. There are people who are living, you know, an entire family and their pets to a single room. Um, they are certainly not going to be back home for Christmas. They are looking at months and months and months, potentially, if ever, if they get back into their homes. So they would expect, I would think, you know, a pretty speedy response where possible. I think Adele makes a really fair point about the you know, for councils trying to work out the costs around this kind of stuff. But I managed to get my hands on a confidential report that had been shared among councillors in Angus. And this report set out that the ministerial task force, which was set up by the government to coordinate response, um, you know, weeks after the flooding hit, they have never met. And also they, this, this is they, the Scottish government, haven't been able to identify any additional funding yet. And also um, the Bellwind scheme, the council is still waiting for confirmation from the government of what exactly can be included in that. So that's a lot of kind of quite key points that haven't been answered yet. And I think when that report was handed out, there was 
outrage, I think, from local officials about it. You know, that this, that nothing had been done there. A few kind of sources I spoke to were certainly furious about it. There, there is now going to be a meeting. There's going to be a meeting this week off the back of, I think, some of that outrage. Um, that is going to happen. So I think hopefully there's going to be some movement on this because there really needs to be, because, you know, there does need to be some longer-term answers about what is the plan here? How are we going to get some of the roads that have been really damaged fixed? How, you know, there's a, there's a bridge that's really badly damaged. People are out of their homes. What is a long-term plan for this? And I think that's answers that people need. I do have a bit of sympathy for the Scottish Government on this, though, because I think, you know, with with climate change, with, with you know, the, the obvious impacts of that, these are events that are going to happen more and more often. And there is a bit of precedent set in here as to how they respond to it. And if this happens again next year, the year after, and the year after that, however they respond is going to be what this, the standard is expected. And I think there has to be, you know, a serious conversation about, you know, how exactly the, the Scottish government plan to respond to these things, not just now, but in the future. Um, so I do, I do have some sympathy for them in that respect. Yeah, and, and they have complained as well that there's not a lot of extra cash coming from, from Westminster or the spending that Westminster, correct me if I'm wrong, Adele, but the spending that was happening down south, it was from existing budgets, which means that there's no knock-on extra cash for Scotland. That's the correct. That's that's right, isn't it? Yes, they seem to have announced a number of what could be seen as, I guess, more immediate measures to help householders down there. Certain things like payments up to five hundred pounds and and some help with council tax. We've done a handy explainer on on what support is is available in Scotland, but it, it doesn't seem quite like for like and it seems quite dependent on what council area you're in, perhaps. But I know, for example, Angus Council have put some information that they're. That if you're a business, for example, you should get in touch with them because they might be able to offer some kind of support. But yeah, it certainly doesn't seem there's this concrete package in the same way that there is down south. That's obviously a funding, a decision that they've made to take from their existing budgets um, and not one that has, as you say, generated extra money for the Scottish government. Okay, well, let's move on and return right back to the start of this episode and our featured interview. Justin, tell us a little bit about why you were speaking to this particular campaigner um, outside Holyrood just the other day. So I spoke to Tracy on Thursday at Holyrood and she was protesting in relation to her son Kyle, who along with um, some other individuals has been in Carstairs, Scotland State Hospital um, since 2009 now, so 14 years at, at the age of 36. It's um, certainly most of his adult life. Um, Kyle has ADHD and learning difficulties and had been in the system in one way or another since he'd left school, but was then placed in Carstairs. Um, and Carstairs, you know, hosts both individuals with learning difficulties, but also violent criminals who have to go there. So there is a mix in that hospital. And obviously that's always been one concern of Tracy's. But her argument has always been that Carstairs is not appropriate for Kyle for a number of reasons. She only gets to visit him occasionally. He's not necessarily allowed to place outside phone calls. Um, and, it, and it means that there's essentially no route out of Carstairs for Kyle. And she argues that he did not go in with you know a criminal record. He is not necessarily a danger to the public in any sense as well. 
So she wants him to be able to live a, a normal life in a community setting. And she is pushing for the government to make changes to the law for that to happen. So improvements to community facilities so that individuals with learning difficulties who need that bit of extra help aren't just put into the state hospital and forgotten about. And she had some really, really strong words to say about that, as you'll hear in a second. It's really, really hurt her family. It's been really difficult for them. You know, Tracy stays in Aberdeenshire. She lives hours away from where Kyle is currently located. So yeah, it's been an extremely difficult situation for her. I think it's worth noting that the state hospital claim that Kyle is, is there for, you know, legitimate reasons. They obviously state that he is legally detained. Nobody who is there is illegally detained. But the problem Tracy has with that is that she wants the law to change. She does not feel that the current laws are fit for purpose. So yeah, Tracy had some um, strong words to say about that. Okay, well, let's see what Tracy had to say when Justin asked her what brought her to the Scottish Parliament. Well, I'm here today um, protesting, um, one, to, to, to raise it that people like Kyle is stuck in these institutions and hospitals um, and are, are actually forgotten about. Um, so I'm down here today and I'm hoping that the government will listen and actually change the way that the boys are just taken away and locked up and then forgotten about. And, and it, obviously the system doesn't work for these boys or they would have been moved on by now. So... Kyle has, if I'm correct in saying, been Carstairs for 14 years now. How difficult has it been for you as a mother to, to see your son trapped in there and to only be able to get limited access to him? How, how difficult has that been for you as a mother? It's it's just broken the family, really. And, um, and Kyle is now feeling how long he's been there. So, and for the fact that it's a struggle and, and they dictate if you go in, when you can go in, when you can talk to him. I don't get a private call. Um, everything is ruled by them and I've got no rights and I've got no say over my son's treatment and care at all. And are you hopeful that sometime in the future, you know, as you continue campaigning, as you continue fighting and raising awareness, that you can get Kyle out of Carstairs or do you fear it's still going to be quite a long time until that happens? Unless the, the government actually listens to the parents and change the way this system is, I feel that Kyle can be there for a, life, a lifetime um, because there's no way, no way getting him out because... The, the, the system for getting them out is through tribunals and things like that, which actually work against you rather than for you. Um, and it's just a, a, it's just one of that wheels. It keeps going round, but it keeps coming back to the same it's the same start if you were started off, and it, it just doesn't work. And if you are able to get Kyle successfully out of Carstairs at any point, what's your hope after that? You know, what is the ideal kind of way for Kyle to live as opposed to you know what he's having to endure at the moment? I just want Kyle to hear a life like everybody takes, you know, and. He wants to work, he wants to get a job, he wants to contribute um, to society, and why should he not? It doesn't matter if he's got learning disabilities and autism or um, ADHD, he's still entitled to a life, like everybody takes for granted that we've got a life, and he wants a life, that's all I want. I want him to be free and and enjoy, because he's lost his youth in the state hospital. He's now 36, and like I say, he's lost his youth. So we can't take, you can't give him that back. And family's moving on and growing up, and Kyle's missed all this. And how difficult is that for you? You know, as you say, he's missed a lot of those formative experiences of, like, you know, graduations, first jobs, all the things we, you know, we do in our 20s. Like, how, how difficult has that been for you as a mother? It's just, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a, it's a living, constant nightmare, and you think, is you ever going 
uh, waking up out of this nightmare. Obviously, the First Minister um, was quizzed about um, you know the, the situation today. How, how did you feel in regards to his answer? Did you think it was positive or do you think there was not really much from it? There was nothing really much from it. Um, just what they've said before and they think they're putting in this £20 million thing for getting people out of hospitals and that. But that doesn't cover Kyle because Kyle's in a compulsory order. So what he says doesn't actually take Kyle into the equation of getting out of these places. Um, he's in a different category altogether. And as you say, one of the most difficult things has been just the fact you're not able to get Kyle out. That just doesn't really seem to be a way forward here. So do you fear for those families who could end up in a similar situation like yourself in future and for you know younger people with autism and ADHD and learning difficulties who could end up trapped in the system like Kyle? Well, I've got a grandson with autism and I feel like you know I wouldn't want this future for him. You know what I mean? People shouldn't lose their life because they maybe have a, a little um, meltdown in a daytime and they're then take everything's taken from them. If they've got a flat, it's taken from them. I mean, really, should that be happening? Um, it's not right. Nobody should use, lose their rights to life just because they've got a disability. You know what I mean? And it is a fear. And I feel sorry if anybody is going to be coming up. And all it started with was asking for help when they reached 18 because there's nothing in place for them. They go to education, they leave education. You're kind of left like, what happens next? You know, what services can you get? And that's how Kyle ended up in the system. It was supposed to be for a six weeks assessment to see what services that the social work could provide. And then he ended up at Castlebeck and Dundee for this assessment and it was two weeks later actually when I went down to pick Kyle up because he was so unhappy I actually realised they'd put in a section on him and I never heard anything like that before in my life I was quite I couldn't believe it it's just ruined my life it's ruined his life it's ruined my life and obviously you wanted more from the First Minister today as you say you were not impressed by his answer if you had one message to Hamza Yousaf right now what would it be? Speak to the parents and ask us where, where the money should be getting spent and stop putting these people into these um, hospitals and just forgetting about them. Paying them millions of pounds means six million so far for Kyle. And is he any further forward in 14 years with that six million pound? Absolutely not. That was Tracy Given. Um, her local constituency MSP, Alexander Burnett, was there too. He, he raised her plight in the chamber of the Scottish Parliament, which um, Tracy had watched from the public gallery. Justin asked him if the Scottish Government is doing enough in response. I think we've been waiting for a long time for some progress uh, to be made uh, with the coming home report. Uh, it's due to be, uh, you know, the actions are meant to be completed uh, by March 2024. Uh, that's only four months away. Uh, so I don't think I'm particularly impressed uh, with what's been happening so far. Uh, I certainly didn't hear any answer today uh, that showed a route home uh, for some of the people in, uh, imprisoned, including my constituent, Kyle Given. You have obviously been working with constituents like Tracy for a long time and you've been working to raise awareness for autistic people trapped in the system like this. How frustrating has it been to see this lack of progress and to see someone like Kyle who has now been trapped in Carstairs for so long? I, for me, I've only been involved since becoming an MSP, so only six years. So that pales into you know, insignificance when you uh, look at Kyle, and, and who's been up, locked up for 14 years, uh, and what Tracy uh, has gone through. Uh, and it, just in those six years, 
uh, some of the iniquity that I've been seeing, uh, not just in how Kyle is being uh, treated, uh, but how Tracy is also being treated. You know, Carstairs is a long way uh, from where Tracy lives. Uh, the cost of transportation, uh, the restrictions on visiting, uh, the restrictions on telephone calls uh, all add up. But I think the greatest iniquity uh, that I see and that, that strikes with me is that even after all this time, uh, there is no uh, proposal on the table that shows a route out for Kyle. And, and so whilst you know, today the protest is called New Routes Home, uh, for me, I would like to see any route home. That was Alexander Burnett, MSP for Aberdeenshire West. And that is it for the Stushi this week. We'll be back next Wednesday with more on the stories beyond the Hollywood bubble and how they affect your communities. Until then, thanks to our guest Tracy Gibbon and to Justin Bowie, Adele Merson, Alistair Clark, Derek Healy, producer Caroline White, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, Sunday Post and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.